0: We begin by acknowledging that the land on which we record this podcast is the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabeg peoples. This territory is covered by the Upper Canada Treaties. We acknowledge the enduring presence of First Nation, Métis and Inuit people on this land, and that not all settlers were brought here by choice. We believe it is important to move forward in the spirit of reconciliation, compassion
1: and respect. This
0: is the Intersection Hub Podcast,
1: where we have candid conversations
0: for social good. My name is Kimberly McKenzie,
1: and my name is Paul Nazareth.
0: We believe in the power of community, and that together we can continuously learn, support, challenge,
1: and improve ourselves, our organizations, and our sector.
0: Join us in the Hub. We look forward to getting to know you. We have such a treat for you today. Today, we welcome Tanya Hannah Rumble and Nicole McFan into The Hub. They are longtime collaborators and respected fundraising leaders. Together, they have led learning sessions and facilitated workshops for more than 2,000 professional fundraisers across North America and in Europe. They cover topics of power and privilege, equity, diversity, inclusion, and fundraising. And together they bring a unique blend of deep expertise as full-time fundraisers, the vulnerability they share and cultivate in their learning sessions through sharing their collective lived experience as racialized, disabled, and trans non-binary professionals, and the power to help folks examine sensitive and challenging topics such as race, oppression, and privilege is all with non justice judgment. Tanya is a racialized settler of multi-ethnic origins living in Toronto. She is a fundraising leader who has raised millions for some of Canada's largest Canadian charities, including uh, the Heart and Stroke Foundation, the Canadian Cancer Society, McMaster University, and now the Faculty of Arts and Yellowhead Institute at X-University. As a racialized philanthropy professional, Tanya is honored to share her influence and insights with students emerging professionals, and peers in the sector. Tanya regularly writes articles on topics of inclusion, equity, and access, and power, privilege, and fundraising for industry publications, and speaks to professional audiences at learning events regularly. Additionally, she is an active leadership volunteer in the philanthropy and nonprofit sector, uh, board of directors with the Association of Fundraising Professionals of Canada, board committee volunteer with AFP Canada Foundation, executive volunteer with the Canadian Association Gift gift Planners, vice chair of the board and chair of the HR committee with Find Help Information Services, operators of 211 Toronto, uh, board director with Native Child and Family Services Toronto, and in addition to sharing her knowledge, she is committed to lifelong learning. She's a graduate of the 2017 AFP Inclusion and Philanthropy Fellowship, a 2010 Diverse City Fellowship, and Tanya gratefully acknowledges the Anishinaabe, Mississaugas, and Haudenosaunee nations who traditional, whose traditional territory she is a settler on and responsible steward of. And there's more about Tanya in the show notes, so please go and have a look. Tanya is joined with Nicole. Nicole is a strategic nonprofit leader with 20 years of experience in Canada and abroad. Uh, Their experience spans many areas including corporate philanthropy, individual and community giving, volunteer development, national event management, and alumni giving. They are currently Vice President Philanthropy and Marketing at the United Way of Greater Toronto. As a white, able-bodied, transgender and non-binary person, Nicole uses an anti-oppressive lens in philanthropy and marketing plans to work with and for communities. Nicole regularly speaks and writes on the topic of equity, privilege, and power dynamics for fundraising publications and at conferences and at learning events. Nicole volunteers their time in the community including On the board at Inside Out Film Festival, an organization committed to the promotion and exhibition of film made by and about LGBTQ people of all ages, races, and abilities. They hold a master's degree in nonprofit marketing and fundraising from City University of London and is currently working on a certificate of community engagement, leadership, and development at Ryerson University to build their knowledge of how to work with and for communities for lasting change. Nicole is grateful to live and work in the traditional territories of the Mississauga and Haudenosaunee nations and acknowledges their role as a treaty person to reconcile, rebuild a relationship with indigenous peoples and settlers on Turtle Island. Please join us to welcome Nicole and Tanya into The Hub. We're so glad that they're here today. Good morning, we are so glad to have you both here. Thank you for joining us today. why don't we give folks an opportunity to hear you and meet you and uh, who would like to go first? How did you get started in this work and how do you identify?
2: Thank you so much for having us on. Kimberly and Paul, I'll start. My name is Nicole McMahon. Uh, We're thrilled to be here today to talk about this work and um, the question how do you get started feels like a really long one. So I'll share that I've been fundraising and philanthropy and marketing world in the nonprofit sector for 20 plus years. I kind of fell into the work around nonprofits, um, like many people did, with a good intention to do something good in the world. Um, And you could call it a good intention, or you could call it white saviorism, or you can call it both. And for the past 20 years, I've been learning and developing in a number of different charities across Canada uh, and the UK for a short time. And what really brought me into this work around equity and justice and inclusion over the last couple of years is an examination of why I'm doing this work, an examination of where I felt really challenged in it. Um, I love many aspects of philanthropy, and I'm also challenged with aspects And so the work that we're doing, the work that I'm really focused on from the inside out is is how to challenge some of those problematic pieces uh, within the philanthropy world, Um, how to take what's gone well and transform what isn't going well. And I've been really reinvigorated over the past couple of years in doing this work because I found more passion in how we do this. I am a white able-bodied, middle-class, Canadian-born, transgender, and non-binary settler. Um, and so recognizing the privileges that I have, especially the white privilege that I bring to this work and what that means um, and how, how I advocate for and with my actions in terms of how we do a lot of this transformative work uh, with organizations and with people who, who want to change, and just sometimes aren't sure exactly where to start or how to keep the momentum going. Mm-hmm. So that's what's kind of brought me to this work. A lot of it has been very personal, but there is this piece about rippling out in terms of how we can really transform uh, the sector uh, and do what we you know, really intend to do with it. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you. I'm so glad you're here, Nicole. Um, Now, before we dive into all of that, let's (laughs) meet uh, Tanya. Thank you for being here and making it a priority today. (laughs) How did you get into this work?
3: Well, thanks, Kimberly and Paul, for inviting us to share the space with you Um, a little bit about me. My name is Tanya Hannah Rumble, and I'm really privileged to be here. Um, I'm a racialized third culture kid. I spent my formative years in the United Arab Emirates, but I was born in Canada, in southern Ontario to two settlers. Um, and so I identify, I guess, professionally as a nonprofit professional or fundraising leader. And I think I feel like a real sense of responsibility to address the differences in power and privilege that are in our society and that over the last few years, I've really noticed to show up in our fundraising. I think I always was aware of it, but I the perspective is sharpened around how much it's entrenched in our sector. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think for the first time kind of in my own life, I'm actually now seeing my intersectional identities as an asset and a gift and something that can propel me forward and create positive impact for others. Um, You know, professionally, I've done lots of fundraising for some really big organizations in Canada, um, Heart and Stroke, Canadian Cancer, McMaster University, and now I'm at X University, which some may know as Ryerson. Um, And I think I hold a lot of different identities, some are visible, some are less visible. Um, And I don't think that they always necessarily indicate whether or not they're a source of privilege or a site of oppression for me. Um, But I think it's important to kind of broaden that out. And so some of the identities that I personally hold are I'm racialized, I'm black, I'm a mom, as you all heard earlier, Um, I'm first generation. I'm disabled, I'm formally educated with advanced degrees, I'm a homeowner, um, a donor, I'm straight, I'm cisgender, And so those are some of the identities that I hold. But I think what brought me to this work is I think that I've been really interested in this idea of like philanthropy and love of humanity. Um, And that's what brought me into my career in fundraising. I actually started my professional career in public health as a health promotion specialist. And was actually on the front lines during the last pandemic being H1N1. And so I loved my work in public health and I worked with really smart, brilliant, thoughtful people working on population health change on things like uh, childhood obesity and and just general chronic non-communicable disease prevention. But I felt like the work was so slow. I was like, when am I going to see the impact of this work? In 20 years, we're going to see that the population health curve is shifted by a few percentage points and there's going to be a few less, you know, for a few less percentage of children that identifies having childhood obesity or a few less adults with heart disease and uh, diabetes. While the work was important, I wanted to see that immediacy and that's what brought me into fundraising. And around that time, I was also doing a diversity fellowship. And that got me thinking more about my intersectionality and how that shows up in my work. And so I held on to that a long time while I was working in fundraising the first few years of my career, which is where I met Nicole. Um, But I never was able to, like, bring those two things together. I was thinking a lot about intersectionality, a lot about, like, these approaches to philanthropy that um, marginalize Certain folks, um, but I was never able to like actually bring that into my work. And it's only in the last few years that I see like this synergy and these things are able to come together. And that's probably because of my own personal growth, but also because I have a bit more um, power and leadership in in the roles that I'm in. And I found greater alignment with my values and the organizations that I choose to work with as a professional fundraiser. So now I don't think it's this thing that's on the side of my desk. It is. Is the work and I can't parse parse it out. It can't be separate from the job. It's just part of the work that I feel empowered and um, called to do now. Well, thank
0: you. We're glad you're here, Tanya. And, and, and there's so much we could talk about, but I know that Paul just wants to get right into it.
1: Well, you know? part of it is I want to frame this for our listeners, because one of the reasons I think that both of you have been so valuable and effective is unlike a lot of other practitioners in this work who are very much on the outside of communities, the two of you are practitioners, you are peers to the sector, and you've brought these conversations from the fringes right to the middle, to the stages of our most important conversations, the AFP Congresses of the world and our community in the Gift Planning Association. It's very key to be able to, just like you did, Tanya and Nicole, tie the mainstream core of our work, to the future of dismantling these issues. You could burn down a house, but you can't burn down a gigantic tower. you got to dismantle it from the inside. And you can only do that if you understand its moving parts. And so I'm very grateful for the way you're doing this too, holding space, creating space in new ways. I want, would love to hear more about how the communities of practice are going because this is the opposite of how we've been doing this for so long. Everybody wants to solve the world in a one-hour webinar, mm-hmm. right? And you're, you're creating an ongoing place for dialogue, again, in the center. Mm-hmm. So I would love to hear that how that's been going, because this is a very different way than this has been done in the years past.
3: Mm -hmm. Well, I just want to maybe hold space and acknowledge one thing before we sort of jump into that, is this idea that there are folks working on the outside, there are those folks that are more activist in, in an external way, and we need them, they push us, they like provide important Um, power, important knowledge, important movement to this broader change that we're trying to create, that's just not my personal orientation, nor is it, I think, as much Nicole's. Mm or we wouldn't work in the organizations that we work and we wouldn't do, we wouldn't take this approach, but I just want to hold space for those who take a a different approach to us because I think that they offer so much value to this work and we wouldn't be able to have the conversations from the inside if there weren't those also pushing from the outside. So I just kind of want to give space to that, but, and also acknowledge that probably as a product of my own upbringing, being the child of, um, of settlers being the child of like a Caribbean mother, um, my orientation is to work from within. And, and I've always believed that meritocracy will like set me free. I don't know that that's true anymore, but my orientation is to work within the system and that's what I'm comfortable doing. So you're right paul i think there's a bit of privilege in that and then there's also like some lived experience that sensitizes us personally to like why we want to do this work from the inside because we could just say like F this, we're going to like leave this sector. But I think that we both kind of feel like we've invested so much. So we should yeah. change what we know. We change what we actually have an opportunity to have influence over. Because no matter where we work, I mean, I worked in a different career. I was actually in public health and I saw a lot of these similar challenges. Like uh, public health was actually slightly further ahead because I think diversity and intersectional intersectionality was was identified as a social determinant of health. And so that was definitely brought to bear in our work, but it wasn't the forefront of our work. So I've seen from another sector that this, it can be just as challenging in any sector. So might as well dig in and do the work in the place where I feel like I've invested a long time. Um, so I'll just pause there and, and then-
0: yeah. Well, I you make, a, you make a great, great point. Uh, we need both, right? We do need folks pushing boundaries and creating dialogue and awareness and we are as a sector going through a reckoning. There are so many areas that we could jump into here. Uh, I wonder if we could just throw it over to you, Nicole, for a minute to just to help set frame what is community of practice and the, the first question that I had, so I'm just going to share it. Yeah. <laughs> Why do you have two spaces? I know the answer now, but that Mm -hmm. is one of the first questions that came up to this cisgendered, white, privileged woman who is dismantling all of my biases, right? Mm -hmm. Why why can't we be together and have this dialogue? So, Nicole, let's frame community of practice and then why you create two
2: separate spaces. Okay. Yeah, thanks so much. And so, first off, I didn't actually know what a community of practice was a couple of years ago, so I had to Google it. Um, So community of practice is basically holding space for practitioners around their profession and the idea of collective wisdom. Uh, And so it didn't start off in philanthropy. It started off actually in other sectors where you come together uh, and you workshop and work through issues that you all have together. Mm -hmm. And so Tang and I have been running a number of webinars and learning sessions around equity, power dynamics in philanthropy. And those have been great spaces for learning and we always create in those webinar spaces for people to do breakout discussions, kind of scenarios and pieces. And the community of practice came out of that after a number of webinars we did. The feedback we were getting was people love to be able to workshop tricky scenarios and situations with each other, you know, in a small group, let's workshop it because this equity work, if you're not practicing it, if you're just passively taking it in, it's really hard to make a move into action. And so we created community of practice uh, last March and we run them monthly. And after one or maybe two months, I think it was just one session where we had everyone together, Um, What we realized pretty quickly was that we needed a space for white folks and allies, it's primarily white folks, and we needed a space for people with visible identities, that's primarily racialized folks, but also could include people with, you know, physical uh, disabilities, uh, transness like myself, people who visibly have an intersectional identity. And the reason we created two spaces is the conversations typically start off in very different places Mm -hmm. and no judgment here. But for many, many white folks, the conversation starts off pretty far behind in terms of if you don't have an intersectional identity, you have to work really hard to sensitize yourself to the oppression of others. Mm -hmm. Uh, And typically you start pretty far back. Um, and so the conversations you're having with your other white colleagues look very different than having a conversation with primarily racialized folks. Uh, an example I give um, is one of our community of practices. We talked about power sharing and power dynamics. Well, if you're of the normative white eurocentric um, uh, orientation in nonprofits, you might you most likely need to look at how you actually share your power, how you step back from your power and how you make space uh, in that. Uh, If you're racialized, disabled, trans, the conversation is more around how how you actually manage through places in which you don't have a lot of power or power is constantly taken away from you. Even if you have positional power in an organization, if you're racialized, if you're disabled, if you're trans, uh, most likely people are constantly taking that of power away from you through microaggressions, through macroaggressions. And so creating two separate spaces creates a dialogue of, of braveness for us to be able to dive into that and honestly, it creates separation where those folks with visible identities are not harmed by the good intentions, though sometimes ignorance of primarily white folks. Um, and that feels very important to us. There's times we can be together, but there's times that we need to have separate conversations.
0: Mm-hmm. I get that now. Um, Paul, I, I, harm has been mentioned a number of times. And I just wonder if it's helpful or useful to talk about the harm that any of you may have experienced, because by naming it, I think we can, and acknowledging it, we can start to fix it.
1: You know, I think the challenge to and the opportunity is that you can't name what you don't, haven't seen and understand. Right. And again, what's really powerful for me is that the two of you have worked, and I'm talking very specifically about things like major gifts and the power imbalance of our profession that has been built on the building blocks of supremacy Mm -hmm. and that that, centering of that power. And again, the only way I think it's going to be dismantled or changed or evolved is if we say, here's how it's built, here are the things we've got to work on, And again, that's why I'm also so grateful that you have these separate groups, because that's been my experience as a racialized person as well, that concept of that power being taken away or shifted and things like that. So I I think the community of practice, and again, the ongoing, the ability to have regular discussions, I really am sometimes, you know, a lot of DEI things are one and done. And that's how I also think that they're not going to be able to do as much help as people wish they would. So, uh, and so again, I, I'd love to hear kind of how people have been reacting in these conversations, how they've been coming along.
3: Conversations have been very, very insightful, we learn a lot. I mean, it is a community of practice for a reason. Nicole and I facilitate to an extent, but we're also on our own learning journeys and we center that. And I think that that's actually part of it. I think that for too, off, too often in most professions and including fundraising, we're expected to be experts. We're expected to be knowledge brokers. We're expected to position ourselves in like with strength and with authority. And so we don't really leave room for mistakes. We don't have a culture of learning. And we don't have an opportunity to actually reflect and move through those opportunities where we, where we've had an insight. And so I think that people are loving this space because I think, I can't think of one organization that I've worked in where in meetings, we've had an opportunity to talk about our stumblings and our failures openly. And that's what this work is. And I think that if we orient ourselves as a learning culture and create this space for collective wisdom there's this idea that we're never going to know it all and that's okay in fact that's what we should say we should stop expecting people to be experts on things and create more spaces where people can openly talk about the things that they have worked through the, the failures that they've experienced even things that are 10 20 years ago that they realize now and they've had an awakening that I didn't realize I was creating harm. I didn't realize that, like, I didn't practice, like, job equity and that I hire people based on fit that basically looked like me, had the same pedigree as me, that went to the same universities as me. Um, and so I think like in these spaces, we're, we're I think we're learning so much, but also it's really interesting to have these two parallel conversations where we're talking about a similar topic, but the way that that topic is like manifesting and how people are experiencing that who have visible identities is worlds away from those who don't. And I don't think we would be able to have those conversations if we were um, all together. But in terms of the harm that's been created... Um, interesting, you know, thanks Kimberly for giving an opportunity to talk through that. I don't spend a lot of time personally thinking about that because I found that that's really exhausted me and really made me feel bad. It doesn't like propel me forward. I think when I actually reflect on the experiences that I've had in fundraising, my personal disposition is to move past it and not believe that race was like, or, you know, my identity was like a reason that I experienced what I've experienced but the reality is it is <laughs> like it, it was and it, it continues to be I think like I can think of very specific moments that I've been passed over for promotions um, Nicole can even probably think of one that we both know of um, and like there was no there's no discernible reason why someone who was like exceeding fundraising goals that like lived the values of the organization and that always like had like superior performance reviews wouldn't be um promoted but someone from the outside would be brought in Mm -hmm. um so you know it's hard it's hard to like sort of sit with that that hurts it feels It's not a good feeling. Um, But I don't spend too much time on that because I can't go back. And it's not going to serve me to move forward. But what I can do now as a positional leader is to like check myself to make sure that like the internalized racism that like I've grown up with um, and the internalized biases that we all hold and that I, of course, hold don't come into play and I think the best way that I can do that is to find myself in these spaces with people that have very different lived experience than me and to sensitize myself to their experiences so that I can understand the harm that they experience and not perpetuate that and not continue that um, when I have leadership and when I have positional power to make sure that I don't um further that harm for anyone else yeah Nicole
2: yeah, I would agree with that. I think, um, I think oftentimes we center our experience on the oppression that we feel. So speaking for white women, a socialized female, centering our oppression around misogyny and patriarchy. And you know, the nonprofit sector is seventy percent white women, though the leadership structure looks very different in terms of more men being in leadership. And so centering that experience for white women to say I've been oppressed is important, but it it has to go beyond that. Mm -hmm. And when I think about harm, I think about the fact that so many of us create so much harm because we're only focusing on the places in which we feel oppressed or structurally disadvantaged. And we're not looking out to the places in which we're least sensitized to identities so different from us so that we can see the oppression we are creating by kind of going myopic on us. And oftentimes we think about this equity work from a very personal level because it is, you know, small T and sometimes big t T traumatic, but we have to ripple out. You have to look at interpersonal institutional and structural oppressions and how they all weave together to hold it together right it's the water we're swimming in um and i think especially for white folks there's often a good bad binary right uh if i do something racist i am a racist therefore i am morally corrupt and not worthy Uh, And oftentimes that stops us, that creates a fragility in which stops us from actually understanding that the reason we do racist things is because we've been socialized in it and we have to unpack that in order to change it. But oftentimes many of us stop at the place of guilt and shame and we shut down. And this work in the community of practice is to say, go past that, Mm -hmm. go past that and move into action from a place of inspiration and hope. Because one thing I think uh, that is so true, and obviously people have been doing this work for for eons, is that we lose momentum after the new cycle moves on because many, many folks move in this work from a place of guilt and shame instead of moving in it in a place of solidarity and mutual liberation. And that's a real critical point um, that we're trying to get across, that we're trying to build a community around so we can keep momentum one of my biggest fears is that in a year from now, we won't be talking about this, mm. uh, that companies won't be running uh, webinars or learning series. Like Paul says, it's a one and done. Let's, let, let's be on this bandwagon for a year or two and let's move off. Um, and so I think that's really critical if you think about then what's the motivation to keep doing this work and how do you set a motivation and intention that is built on the future and not on past.
0: I'm taking a moment because part of my evolution is to, you know, my default is to just center myself in this conversation. And I think back and I listen to some of the podcasts where this, we've talked about these things and I cringe at my responses because I immediately go, Oh yeah. Well, I guess I'm a gatekeeper. And I, this is so hard for me. And I'm sitting here literally, um, quite emotional listening to you all thinking of the harm that I may have caused people that I don't even realize. And here I am centering it around myself again. So that's just, I did that as an example of what we need to stop doing. (laughs) And and, and Paul, I'm going to throw it over to you.
1: Yeah. And you know, one of the things that I feel has been used as a weapon for a long time and has stopped these conversations is comparative suffering Mm. and people Mm -hmm. bring to that. And one of the things that I find is powerful about an off book, non you know, not an official tied to your job and all that kind of stuff is to be able to say, let's put these things down and let's enter into a constructive dialogue to move forward together. Mm-hmm. But again, that can really only be done when people are of an understanding or talking about kind of the shared platforms they stand on and the places where they perpetuate this stuff. So, you know, that's the part I think is is really important and powerful and if we don't leave it to the powers that be, because I think, you know, Nicole, I think in a year they will stop. We've seen it time and time again. <laughs>
0: Do you really
3: think?
1: Oh, yes. I'm betting on. We that. already oh, see the almost. momentum. <laughs> right down yeah, to we see day. We see
3: the momentum shifting already. Like we were getting 90 people to our community of practice and we're not measuring the strength or capacity of our community of practice by the number of folks that that show up and passively sort of like listen. But like that tell, you know, that that number is a lot less now. Cause I think that the news cycle and like the conversation has like shifted into other things. I'm not entirely sure what those other things are sometimes. But yeah, I think that no, I do think the momentum has shifted already. We feel it, we see it, and but it's not shifted for us. And I think one thing I will also say is the reason why we focus on visible identities is because like identities are like this iceberg we all know this analogy but if we don't even create cultures and a sector that like allows those identities that like i can't hide my blackness when I show up in a space, yeah. if you don't at least create cultures that like protect and like create bravery and and value that identity, then how are people going to show up with all the things that they hold in and they don't need to actually like center and they don't need to disclose and we're losing so much richness in our sector because people don't show up as their whole selves because they're not safe to do so. They see what happens to racialized folks. They see what happens to trans folks. They see what happens to disabled folks. I mean, the perfect example is the way in which we've all been, for the most part, able to have have our needs accommodated through the pandemic and think about how many folks with accessibility challenges or familial care responsibilities pre-pandemic were not given that same um, opportunity to have their needs met. So, you know, think about, I think, you know, if we think about that, um, that's why this work is really important because we talk a lot about there's like this missing pipeline of diverse professionals in our sector and i totally disagree with that paul we've had this conversation the pipeline is severed we bring people in and they leave like we cut that pipeline and people leave in droves because they're not it's not safe for them and beyond safe they don't have the bravery to bring their authentic selves to work or if they do harm is created as a result of that intersectional identity being brought to bear um and so, yeah, I think we feel like such a responsibility because I think that we're losing the richness um, that those lived experiences can bring in our sector. And we're talking about wanting donors with lived experience. Well, what about, the, what about the staff with the lived experience? Like, how do we create spaces for them? Like, we can't possibly think that we have the ability to bring in donors who have different expectations and lived experiences if we can't even keep the, the staff that have those identities.
1: And I want to say that again, because we have a whole bunch of listeners who are in these positions of power and hiring and all that. Uh, I was breathless when you first brought that up, Tanya, Tanya, to talk, to actually articulate, because pipeline is constantly referred to as one of the issues. You know, I think in my mind of a piece of art where it has different perspectives. And from one perspective, it looks like a straight line. It looks like a bridge to cross. Uh, and then you turn it sideways and you see those massive gaps. And that's been what it's been for. I think again, Nicole, you identified this of, of, of racialized and different people of visual identities that they can't turn off. And so there's been these barriers or invisible barriers, as in gigantic gap, chasm gaps to cross. And tell, you know, we're talking about the Great Resignation these days. There's a whole bunch of people that said, I don't need to put in all this effort to these things when I can create a world for myself in which I don't have to hide, create armor. You know, again, I'm someone who in my particular career has massive different types of physical, psychological, everything armor around. And young professionals are like, I don't need to do that. I could just start, you know, my own business, be an entrepreneur uh, and work in the space. And that is an alternative as well. But if we want people into this profession and, quote, unquote, listen up, bosses and boards, we also know you want that money. Right. They say things like we want money from these communities. We want leaders from these communities. Cool. Then you need to give access to these communities and have represent, representation from them, and that is very scary to a lot of these these folks because they've never opened up these doors of access before.
0: Mm-hmm. Nicole, go.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I was
0: gonna say, Nicole. I feel like you had, like, you yeah. were gonna tell us something. I know, we don't have a lot of time, so just (laughs) jump in. (laughs) Uh,
2: I don't even know where to start. I have so many opinions, but I think I'd like to start with a a respond in terms of the conversation of external versus internal, and I think that's a big conversation right now. We've kind of been talking about it, and it feels like this conversation around securing funding from different communities and different intersectional donors, um, it's, can happen, but has to happen in conjunction with the conversation around our own sector. Um, and so many of you if you have probably read Decolonizing Wealth by Edgar Villanueva, uh, which is a great book. It talks about fundraising, but it also talks about grant making. And one thing he says is, you know, having a seat at the table is different than having, feeling like you have a voice at the table and you're heard. And I think we can talk about both at the same time, But it is uh, a total myth to think that we're going to bring these donors in uh, without actually reshaping the culture and the norms of our organization in terms of who we invite in, how we invite them in, and how we consistently hold space. I think about philanthropy, I think about how many sales trainings I have been on in my 20 plus year careers, how many fundraising trainings, how many conferences I've been to around like better donor stewardship, all of these things we do all of this professional development. Well, what if we flip the script and say, most of that is actually harmful. And what if we spent our time and our money and our capital on conversations around reshaping the way in which we work, because how we work is as important as what we do. And that will then create a different space in which we can invite donors in and have different conversations. you can't talk to a donor about donor saviorism unless you've addressed it within yourself and in your own organization. So it's a false, it's a false prophecy to think we can leapfrog all over this uh, to get to a space where, oh, now we've got a super diverse and inclusive board, or we've got fundraising and all of these racialized communities that we can't tap into. Uh, that is saviorism to the T, that is tokenism to the T, uh, and so when we go right there, we're really we're just perpetuating so much more harm, and this is where the momentum will just shut down because you'll try it, it won't work, and you'll be like, well, on to the next thing
3: also can I just add something that I've been sitting with um there was a comment that was made in our community of practice the other day and I'm by no means disclosing anything that we wouldn't want to disclose because it is a brave space but someone said something about this being a working group and like I bristled at that I don't want to be a part of another working group like Nicole and I are not like in a working group together this isn't a committee this is a lifelong orientation these are our values and I think that if we if we liken this work to like um like a, a working group that's trying to accomplish a specific thing. We lose the whole beauty of this. We think about donor centricity is like building these relationships. And if I think even on my, on a personal level, The relationships that are most fulfilling personally or professionally are the ones where you've invested time and you really have shared values and you understand each other. That's what we're trying to do. So I want to just make sure that we like take this conversation away from like what would be the outcomes that we're looking for? What would be we want this sector to look completely different? There's not like that's like such a big big outcome it's not a smart goal that can be like (sighs) measured with specificity that's not the goal of this work we're trying to transform like the way that people's like hearts and minds are oriented to this work the values that drive you in this work and that will take time and we're in it for the long haul so like yeah there may not be like specific outcomes from our community of practice but we think the ripple effects of people's like changing people's orientation and awakening them to the things that are experienced by queer, trans, racialized, Muslim, disabled, neurodiverse fundraisers and donors and beneficiaries, we haven't even gone there, is like way more important than any kind of like physical outcome of our work or new like, I don't know, donor bill of rights, (laughs) fundraiser bill of rights. Those things would be good, but like that's not what drives us in this work.
0: I think that's such an important point because many uh, boards are, are, you know, they've added DEI work to their rubber stamp of what we need to do to be an inclusive and relevant organization, but they haven't even given any thought to how do you lay fertile ground for the conversation? How do you look at yourself in the mirror and think about your own lived experience and the harm you may have caused? And, and so your points are all all well-made. Um,
2: I, I um, wanna- Kimberly, yeah, can, I, can I suggest something? For when sure. we talk about harm it's not the harm we may have caused it's the harm we have caused right and i think that that like just taking may out of it is yep. helpful for all of us because then it puts us back into this conversation about we have right and that's okay doesn't make us a bad person let's let's make sure that we it's truth before reconciliation let's acknowledge the truth of the harm we've created and move towards something better
0: that's a great point thank you Um, and I received that. Okay.
1: And Before we go, you know, I just want to to call out, because one of the most exhausting questions is, where do we start? Where do we go from here? And (laughs) for a lot of us, it's exhausting. And we've mentioned some of them. I want to mention them again, because people got to do the homework, right? Second edition of Edgar's book just came up. uh, And actually, one of the ones, our colleague Rakesh reached out to me and said, both of us as South Asian cisgendered males, Paul, have you read Collecting Courage? because it is the story of practitioners, of fundraisers. And it's shameful for us because we assume so many of these stories are American and the American Black experience, but more than half of this book is Canadian and our own peers. And if people are looking to do the homework, do the homework. Again, don't always ask where it can come from. As our great colleague, Libor of the Foundation for Black Communities said, and their report is a seminal one that people have got to read. But Google, do the, you know, do the work uh, before you show up. And, and again, it, people need to know it is exhausting for everyone to start uh, since this has come along such a, a long way to always start at the start when there's so much people can do on their own. So yeah, thank I you both we're... of you for writing too, for doing all that yeah. writing. And I encourage our listeners to follow you both in the places that you write and speak.
3: Kenya? Yeah, I was just going to say, like, you know, I think often about we just had a long weekend here in Canada and Thanksgiving. And I think about the kind of like tacitly oppressive things that get said around like an intimate dinner table. And we can liken that to like the tacitly oppressive things and practices that happen in our sector. And if we're not willing to call out or call in in those places then like it's really hard to like do that on the main stage and so we got to start by decolonizing ourselves we got to start by like actually like turning that focus inwards and saying like what what do we let slip by because we are in relationship with someone and is that the kind of relationship that we want to be in and it's, uh, it's hard work and it's messy, um, but if we're willing to do it and we're committed to it, then that might mean walking away from some relationships with people that are quote-unquote good or quote-unquote have good intentions, but they create harm um, and that's okay. Like that is, this work is not going to be clean.
1: Nicole? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: I think... Uh, I I know
0: we're, we're getting close to time. And we'll continue this conversation, we'll continue this conversation,
2: but keep, keep going. What, what is your point? We've got time. I think uh, a really simple point. So I think a lot of people are looking for like, give me something, give me something to work with here. So one simple sentence that can help everybody in this work is impact over intentions. And I'm thinking of actually making a shirt with impact on top over intentions because it's pretty simple. It's basically like whatever your intentions are, they are not as important as the impact of your words and your actions. And holding that principle, just hold, hold that principle in everything you do and you'll start to see your muscle build on this. And this equity work is just like building any other muscle or any other habit. You've got to keep doing it, it will build momentum, and it will carry you forward. And impact over intentions is one simple little mantra, little principle that people can say to themselves to think about how they're showing up in every conversation and every decision in every way. Um, it's a really easy one. So folks are looking on where to go, read those books, do the Google, but just Get a couple of these principles in your head and just start working on them.
0: Well, the thought that people are losing interest um, is new to me because I'm just starting to lean in. And uh, and I absolutely don't want to, well, let me put it a different way. I'd love to contribute any way I can to keeping that momentum going. Um, so I hope that you both would be willing to come back because there were a lot of places we could have gone. And I don't even think, Paul, you got started.
1: Indeed. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be joining you at those communities and in the work that you do. And from all those for whom you're helping to change their world for them in which they don't have the energy, just a note of gratitude there. Yeah. Thank you for your work.
3: Well, thanks for having us on. I think we're always excited. We're very passionate clearly about uh, this topic and, we're always happy to be in conversation with folks who have an interest in, in being a part of this work and have an orientation to, um, to these values and to making this sort of long-term change in our sector.
2: I would just agree with this. And I think, Kimberly, you said, I'm, I want to help. What can I, like, you didn't say, what can I do? You said, I want to help and I'm, I want to do this. I think by creating this platform, and having these conversations and the, you know, we need many, many irons in the fire for this work. So you are propelling this conversation forward by giving us a platform to talk about this uh, and by bringing it into all of your own work. Uh, And so that feels really great. And we usually end each community of practice um, with real gratitude for the folks that have shown up because this is tiring work, no matter what your identity, this is tiring work. Um, and it's exhausting in the middle of a pandemic um, and everything else going on. So huge gratitude that you're willing to engage in this and that we're all, there's people that really want to drive this forward. So thank you.
0: Thank you. That was such a rich and vibrant conversation and I really do hope that Nicole and Tanya will come back in the new year so that we can keep it going. This work will continue because together we must all contribute to building a strong community of practice. If you would like to participate in this work or have questions for Tanya and Nicole, um, we've included a link in our show notes for you to reach out to them. As always, thank you for making this conversation a priority in your busy day. Together we will continue to build a more fair, just and unified community for each other and for those who follow. So please remember to share, like, and subscribe to this podcast so that more people will get the opportunity to hear it. Until then, we'll see you next time.